0: How many of y'all have ever been on a team? Who's been on a team? Okay, it could be a sports team, a debate team, a team at work, even a band. Like bands are sort of like teams, right? Okay, so when you're on a team, you know this, when you're on a team, there's a certain way of life, a certain way of doing things that characterizes that particular team, okay? And uh, you practice a certain way, you play a certain way, there's a style that characterizes your team. And that style shapes everything else you do. It shapes the way you act, the way you behave, the way you live, even outside of the team. And if you change teams and you join a different team, well, then that style, it changes, right? A new team means a new coach and a new style. A new team means you're going to practice and play and act and live and behave in different kinds of ways. A new team means a new playbook and therefore a new way of life. We're preaching through 1 Corinthians, and the underlying logic of everything Paul is saying in this letter is that when you believe in Jesus, you join his team. And being on his team has massive implications for how you then live. To put it succinctly, Paul's ethics can be summed up like this Your belief in Jesus needs to shape your behavior, your creed about Jesus needs to shape your conduct, your position on Team Jesus needs to shape the way you live. Now the problem in Corinth was that though these Christians were supposed to be on team Jesus, they looked just like everybody else and they looked like they were playing for a different team. They were being shaped far more by their culture than they were by the cross. This church, as we've talked about the last several weeks, this church was a mess. In the last few weeks we've kind of been wading into that mess, been taking little steps into it. And today we're taking a step deeper. And so let's read it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Going to be in verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And by the spirit of our God. Father, we come to you this morning. And we stand under your word to receive what you have to say. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you're saying to us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is the mess in this passage. Christians are suing each other. And that is a problem. In verse 1, Paul asks a loaded question. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, if you don't know, the saints is our nickname on Team Jesus. Okay? In the Bible, if you're a believer in Christ, you're on the saints. That's who you are. And on Team Jesus, when you've got a problem with another saint, how do you settle it? What do you do? Well, for the Corinthian Christians, the answer was you go to a secular court of law and you file a lawsuit. You're taking each other to court. You're putting each other on Judge Judy. Now, it's important here to clarify what is and what is not happening. The issues in view here are civil issues, not criminal issues. So this is two Christians who have a conflict with one another. Paul speaks here of a grievance it talks about matters pertaining to this life. It talks about a dis- dispute between brothers and defrauding each other. So what is in view here is some dispute over property or services rendered or damages suffered. It could be a business deal gone bad. It could be a disagreement over compensation. It could be uh, somebody borrowed something and just didn't give it back. Right? It's something like that. That's kind of the range of issues we're looking at. And so to be really clear, Paul is not saying here that Christians should never involve legal authorities in any matters. He's not saying that. Paul indicates elsewhere in places like Romans 13 that when a crime is involved, there's there's government action that would be the right course of action to take. And so for example, if a pastor in the church steals money from the church, going to the government and reporting that to the government is the right course of action to take. We ought to do that. Or if in the church you discover uh, sexual abuse or child abuse, we call the police, we report those things. Our pastors and those who serve in our children's ministry down the hall, we are mandatory reporters. And so if we see something, we say something. If we see a crime, we report it. Because the church does not cover up crimes. That's not what Paul is talking about here, okay? Understood? But what Paul is talking about is conflicts between Christians. And when two Christians have a conflict, we don't sue each other over it. Now, the world might do that. That might be their playbook. But when you're on Team Jesus, we have a different playbook for that situation. And our playbook, it comes from Jesus himself. Take a look at this. This is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. And in this passage, Jesus says this. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, if another Christian sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So first step, you go and you talk one-on-one. You bring it to the person. You address it with the person directly. And if the person listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, So that's the goal right there. It's to restore the relationship, to bring the person back into a right relationship with you. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. So bring a few trusted teammates along to help you work it out together that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to the witnesses, to the others who, who have background, who, who can back up the facts of the matter, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. So go to your church leadership. That's why we have pastors and elders. You can go to your deacons or others who have expertise in whatever the area is. You bring it to the broader church. And then, and only then, if you've gone through all of those steps, then... If he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So treat that person then as an outsider, as as not a member of Team Jesus. Because by his actions, he's displaying that he's not part of Team Jesus, okay? So this is Jesus' playbook for conflict resolution on Team Jesus. And if you're here today and you've got an issue with someone else in this room or some other Christian someplace else, this is the playbook. This is the way that you are meant, you are supposed to resolve that issue, okay? Now, the problem in Corinth was that these Christians were not following this playbook. Instead, they were suing each other. And what Paul does in the rest of this text is he gives three reasons why that was a problem. And right here, you know, I think for most of us, it's, it's, most of us here in this room, it's pretty unlikely that we're just, like most of you are not sitting here today just contemplating how you can sue someone else, some other Christian. Like you're not just targeting that. That's not on your radar, right? Like this is not what you're thinking about. But y'all, the principles in this passage, the principles here are super relevant to all kinds of conflicts and problems we encounter in the church. And so check out these three reasons. The first reason we don't sue each other has to do with competency in verses two through six Paul essentially says that lawsuits are dumb because Christians should be smart enough to figure this out in-house so to make this point in verses two and three Paul asks a couple questions he says do you not know that the saints will judge the world and then he follows that up with do you not know that we are to judge angels and right now most of you are sitting there saying well well, Paul actually I did not know that (laughs) I wasn't aware of that reality So let me tell you what's going on here. This is a doctrine that we don't talk about all that often, but it's an idea that originates in the Old Testament, primarily in the book of Daniel. And then it gets picked up by Jesus and the apostles and gets uh, spread out in the New Testament where we hear more about it. But the idea is that Jesus is the chief justice of a cosmic supreme court. And one day that cosmic supreme court, with Jesus as the chief justice, is going to judge all those who are in rebellion against God. And that includes both sinful humanity and fallen angels alike. So angels and people are going to stand before this cosmic supreme court one day. And when that day of final judgment comes, do you know who Jesus is picking up as his associate justices? Well, it's us. It's team Jesus. We're going to help him out in that final judgment someday. That's the idea. And Paul brings up this cosmic court to make this point. He's saying, look, if you're going to be a part of handling those huge cosmic matters in the future, shouldn't you be able to deal with the small trivial matters of right now, everyday life? Shouldn't you be able to sort these things out? In verse 5, he then implies that there's got to be at least one person. Like, in, if you've got a conflict here, there's got to be at least one person in this whole space who's wise enough, who's got enough insight to help you figure out the solution. Right, you ought to be able to solve it in-house. And so this first reason Paul brings up is because of competency. He's complimenting us, really. He's saying, hey, you've got what it takes to solve problems in-house. So do it. You don't need to go outside. You can solve them right here. Now, the second reason has to do with witness. It's about the message that Team Jesus sends to the watching world. So think about this. As Christians, we profess to follow a Savior who willingly laid down his rights and willingly laid down his life for our salvation. He was willing to be wronged so that we could be saved. So when we sue each other, demanding payment, or when we go through a conflict demanding to be proven right, or when we go through life demanding our rights, saying, it's mine, I need to get what's coming to me, I need mine. When we go through life with that kind of perspective, we're doing the polar opposite of what Jesus did for us. Jesus didn't demand anything for himself. Now he willingly laid down everything for us. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Two Christians bickering with each other, fighting with each other, just doesn't look good. It's the inverse of what Jesus does. And for that reason, when we act like that, it's embarrassing to the cause of Christ. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. When Christians go to court against each other, everybody loses. Even if you win a big settlement, you lose your witness. It makes Jesus look bad. And you see Paul's heart in all of this come through in the next part of the verse. It says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, when you're in a conflict, why not rather be like Christ? Now, I have a friend who a few years ago, he needed new uh, brake pads on his car. And uh, there was a guy in his church, a friend of his in church, who said that he was really good with cars, who also my friend knew was in a tough spot financially. Like he was dealing with some significant financial stresses in his life. Didn't have much money, was having a hard time making ends meet. And so my buddy, uh, he, he, he was talking to this guy, and this guy offers, he said, hey, I can, I can fix your car for you. Like I, I know a lot about cars, I can take care of this for you. My buddy says, hey, this is a win-win. Like, he'll fix my car up. I can help him out financially. Like, everybody wins here. This is a good situation. And so my buddy gives this guy his car, and this guy takes his car, and he's got it for a couple days, and then he brings it back. And my buddy, a few days later, he's driving around, and he just, something's just not right with the car. Like, there's weird noises, and it's just not driving properly. It's just something's off. So he's scratching his head a little bit and he takes it to a mechanic shop. and He says, hey, like, this is what's going on. And the mechanic looks at the car and he says, well, here's the deal. Your brake pads were installed backwards. And now, uh, not only is that a problem, but it's also messed up a bunch of other stuff. And you've got major mechanical work that needs to be done to fix this thing. Now, if you were in that situation, if if, uh, a guy from church, if someone else had done that to your car, and you had paid him good money to do it, how would you handle it? What would you do? Like one option is you could go after the guy for all these words. You could go after him, you could say, hey, you messed up my car, you're gonna pay for this. You're gonna fix it, you're gonna make it right. You could ruin him. And if he doesn't pay you, if he doesn't figure it out, like you could take him to court and you could sue him. You could do that, it would be within your rights. But my buddy, that's not what he did. What he did is he zoomed out and he thought about the bigger picture perspective. He thought about this brother in Christ who was in a tough spot financially, who who made a sincere effort to try to help him out. And he thought about all that Jesus had done for him, how generous Jesus had been in his own life. And what he did in that moment at the mechanic shop is he laid down his rights and he pulled out his wallet and he paid the cost. He wrote a check and he paid the mechanic shop and he took care of it. And then he didn't say anything to the guy about it. He just let it go. You see, when you're in that kind of situation, you've got a choice to make. What do you care most about? Do you care most about being proven right or about laying down your rights? Do you care most about getting what you deserve or about giving others grace they don't deserve, the kind of grace that you've received? Do you care more about your reputation or about Jesus's reputation? What do you care most about? Lawsuits are a problem because your witness matters. And I'm not saying that if you're in a situation like that, that's what you have to do. Not saying that's, that's the rule book for you, but it's something you at least need to consider. Something you need to consider. And that brings us to the third reason why lawsuits are problematic. And this third reason really elevates the matter. This last one is about eternity. In verse eight, Paul levels an accusation at the Corinthians. He says, "But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You are unwilling yourselves to be wronged, but you are eager to wrong other people." And then he goes on in verse nine, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" Now the ESV translation here that I read from earlier, it obscures something important in this verse. The word that is translated unrighteous here is the same word that gets translated wrong in verses seven and eight. So check out the NIV translation here. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So on team Jesus, there is a right way to play, and wrongdoers do not belong on the team. To drive home the point, in the second half of verse nine, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself on this. See, by suing each other and by doing a whole bunch of other nonsense, the Corinthians were doing wrong. And Paul here wants to make it abundantly clear to them and to us that if you persist in doing wrong, if your life is characterized by wrongdoing, then you will find yourself on the wrong side of God's final judgment. And before that cosmic Supreme Court, you will not be on the bench, you will be in the dock. You will be the subject of the judgment. And then to be comprehensive, Paul proceeds to list out a series of examples of different types of wrongdoing that could exclude you from God's eternal team. These things he lists here, these are things that true Christians just don't do. These are plays that members of Team Jesus don't run. They're not part of our playbook. And Paul is warning us here that if we keep running these plays, we are in danger. There are in this list 10 items in the Greek. The first item is sexual immorality. As Phil mentioned last week, the Greek word here is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And it's kind of a junk drawer term for any kind of sexual activity that happens outside the context of a married man with his wife, a husband and a wife inside of marriage. And so this would include, porneia would include everything from looking at pornography to masturbation to sexual fantasies to fooling around or hooking up or having sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or with your fiance. It's any kind of sexual activity except that which happens with your opposite sex spouse. That is pornea. Next is idolaters. Idolaters are people who worship any god except the true god of the Bible. These are people who put anything other than God first in their lives. That might be a physical idol, like something you actually literally bow down to and worship from another religion, or it might be something like your career or your family or money or finances or success or fame. Anything that takes first place in your life other than God is idolatry. Paul goes on. Adulterers, these are married folks who have sex with someone other than their spouse or unmarried folks who have sex with someone who has a spouse. Let's skip down to verse 10. Thieves. Thieves are people who take stuff that isn't theirs. Then the greedy. These are people who sue each other. People who always want more. People who never are satisfied with what they have. I need more clothes. I need more shoes. I need a nicer car. I need a bigger house. More, more, more. That's greed. Then drunkards. Drinking every day or having a few too many on the weekend. Then revilers. Those who lie about others. And finally swindlers. People who cheat others to get what they want working under-the-table kind of deals, back-alley ways of working around things, swindlers. And then look back at the end of verse 9. In English translations at the end of verse 9, there's a statement that has frequently frequently been both misunderstood and misused by Christian and non-Christian interpreters alike. And I've saved it for last here because I want to take a minute to help us rightly understand it today. In the Greek, there are actually two terms here, but in English it reads simply men who practice homosexuality. Greek, like many languages, both ancient and modern, it had distinct terms for those who played the active and the passive roles when men had sex with other men. And Paul here is using both of those terms, malakoi and arsenikoitai. And the reason Paul uses those terms, both of them, is that what he's saying is that men having sex with men in general... No matter which part you're playing, no matter which role you're in, men having sex with men in general is wrong. It's an example of wrongdoing. Now, hear me on this. The problem here is the act of men having sex with men. This is not a condemnation of attractions per se. Attractions requires a much broader conversation, and that's why over the coming weeks we're creating some spaces to have some of that conversation. But this is a clear biblical prohibition on same-sex sexual actions. Now, there is throughout Scripture a very clear playbook for actions related to sex. God gave us sex as a good gift to be enjoyed in a particular context. That context is the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And that relationship is designed to be a living picture of God's relationship with his people, It is a lifelong, one-flesh union of two different but complementary people who have given themselves entirely to one another. And when they come together physically, they are doing with their bodies what they've already committed to doing with their whole lives. That is the context where sexual actions of any sort are right and good, where that is the playbook for sex. But outside of that context, sex is never the right play. And that includes, though it is certainly not limited to, that includes sex between two members of the same sex. So sexual acts between two men or between two women are not part of the Team Jesus playbook. Now we have here within our congregation several people, beloved siblings in the family of Christ, people we value, people we love. We have several folks in our congregation who are gay or who experience same-sex attraction. We love those folks, and we're so grateful that they're part of our community here. We've had wonderful conversations, and they're they're a vibrant part of the life of our church. They belong here. You belong here. We also, in our church, we have many others who have other sexual desires that would fall outside the boundaries of what Scripture would call good and right. For many others of you sitting here today, you have desires for someone who's not your spouse. You have attractions to someone you're not married to. You have desire for multiple partners or for for other kinds of sexual activity. You see, when it comes to sexuality, the truth is that all of us are broken. None of us is perfectly straight. None of us. And so when Paul includes men who have sex with men here in this list, he is doing so not to single out a special category of really bad sinners, No, he's including same sex sexual sin as one example of wrongdoing, right alongside several other categories of opposite sex sexual sin, which are right alongside several other categories of sin that have nothing to do with sex at all. Because this list, it is not here as a magnifying glass through which to zoom in on the sins of other people. No, this list is a mirror in which we need to look closely at ourselves. Where do you see yourself in this mirror? Where do you see yourself on this list? Because all of us are in here. Every last one of us. All of us right now or at some point in our lives has been guilty of something on this list. And Paul's warning to all of us is that those who commit these actions on a persistent, ongoing basis, those for whom verses 9 and 10 are the playbook of your life, People who do these things, they will not spend eternity with God. Now, why is Paul saying all of this? Why is he so strong here? Family, it is because he does not want that to be the case for his readers or for you or for me. He does not want us to be eternally excluded from God's kingdom, he wants us to be eternally included. And that is where verse 11 is so beautiful and so precious. See, all of us are indicted by Paul's list. We're all guilty. Apart from verse 11, we're all destined for exclusion. But praise God, there's a verse 11 in this passage. Paul writes, and such were some of you. This church in Corinth was made up of people who had spent their lives running that playbook. This was a rough crowd. This was a rough crowd who had played for some bad teams, doing some bad stuff. These were not just good church people who always did the right thing. These were people who had a past, who had a story, who had some dirt on themselves. But y'all, something happened to them that changed everything for them. Paul uses three important words to describe that change. He says First, you were washed. You got a spiritual bath that cleansed you of all of your past sin. Second, you were sanctified. Sanctified is the verbal form of the noun saints. It means that you were set apart by God to belong to him. It means that God picked you up in the draft. And third, you were justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous. The root word here is the positive of the words that are translated wrong earlier in the passage. So it means that God says that even though you have done wrong, I declare you to be right. You are right in my book. You're right in my eyes. So cleaned, drafted, made right. That is what happened to these Corinthians despite all of their wrong. And how did that happen? It happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All of us have done wrong, but Jesus Christ never did. Jesus lived a perfectly right life. He always ran the right play. And yet on the cross, he suffered the greatest wrong the world has ever known. He took all the wrongs of humanity upon himself, and he died to pay the just penalty for all of our wrongdoing. What Jesus suffered on the cross, it is what wrongdoers like you and me, it is what we deserve. And yet, because Jesus suffered on the cross, it is not what we have to deserve, and it is not what we have to receive. Because of Jesus, instead of exclusion, God offers you inclusion. Instead of punishment, God offers you a place on his team forever. You see, the good news of the Christian faith is that whatever wrong you have done, or whatever wrong you are doing, Jesus offers to make you right. God does not want anyone to be excluded from eternity with him. That is why he sent Jesus into the world. That is why he has given us passages like this one. And that is why he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of his saints. God wants you on team Jesus. He wants you running his playbook both now and forever. And what that takes from you, what that requires of you, is simply giving your life to him just as he gave his life for you. When I was 20 years old, I got invited to play on a basketball team on a mission trip in South Africa. And I went because it was a chance to play basketball in Africa. That sounded amazing. And so I signed up for this trip to go. And I'd, I'd been, like, reading the Bible and thinking about Christianity, kind of considering it, uh, considering what, what I was going to do with it for a couple of years. And, and so I went on this trip. And uh, on this trip, um, while I was there, I started to... Uh, we were playing these basketball games and I was having a great time playing basketball, but I was thinking about this God question really, really seriously. And, uh, at the end of that trip, the team I was on, we played this game where I very decisively did not run the Jesus playbook. Like, I was on the court and I was just a jerk during this game. I was yelling at the referees. I was cussing at them. Uh, there was one play where I, this guy was ahead of me on a fast break and I ran after him and I just tackled him under the basket to keep him from scoring a point. And, and I, was just, I was just not running the Team Jesus playbook. I was a jerk on the court. And, and, and in all honesty, it was, kind of a, it was kind of a microcosm of my life as a whole. Like, when I zoomed out and I looked at my life as a whole, I was, even though I, I probably would have said, Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I realized, like, my life did not reflect that. My belief did not match, my behavior did not match my belief. My conduct did not match my creed. Like, I was running a different playbook. I was often a jerk off the court. And all this, that stuff in that list, like, that was me. That was my life. And after that game, after we lost that game, our coach, one of our assistant coaches, he pulled us together. And there were some steps behind the court. And I remember sitting on those steps in Cape Town, South Africa. And this coach gave us a good, long talking to about the way we had conducted ourselves in the game. And as I was sitting there on those steps, and our coach was talking to us, he said some words that changed the course of my life. He looked at our team and he said, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it was the other team playing for Jesus Christ and not you guys. And those words, I sat there. They convicted my heart. And that day I recognized that even though I would have said I was on Team Jesus before that day, I really wasn't running his playbook. And so that day, I prayed a prayer that changed the course of my life forever. Sitting there on those steps in Cape Town, I prayed and I said, God, you can have my life. I want Jesus. I will take Jesus, and you can take all the rest. That prayer marked the day that I truly joined Team Jesus. And my life since that day has been spent learning more and more to run his playbook by the power of his spirit in my life. Y'all, today, some of you need to pray a prayer like that, too. Some of you need to take stock of which team you've been playing for. You need to know there's a spot on Team Jesus waiting for you. He wants you to run his playbook. He wants you to be with him forever. But which team are you on today? Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, all of your word. And in particular, tough passages like this one. That speak to all of us. That challenge all of us. I praise you today that there is uh, Team Jesus that we can be a part of. It's a winning team. It's the best team. It's a team that we get to play with forever. Runs the best offense, the best style. It's just the best place to be. And I praise you that you've made a way for us to be a part of your team through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, through his life, death, and resurrection. And God, I pray for us as a people. For those of us who say we're on your team, God, we run your playbook in our lives. In every area, would we follow you and be faithful to you to run the plays you would have for us? For those of us who have not been doing that, would today be a wake-up call? Would today be a day where where, where there's just a recommitment, a turning back to you to to commit all of life to you, to run your plays? Where you pray right now for those who are feeling some conviction, that they would come forward and they would even talk to somebody about it today. So we can help them as a team. We can come around and we can help them to get right, to start living right. And I pray for those who are here today who maybe, maybe are realizing, hey, I'm not really on team Jesus. I haven't really been committed to him. I haven't really been following him. Would well, today be the day where that changes? And if that's you and you're listening right now, I'm just gonna pray this prayer and I invite you to pray after me. Pray with me. God, I see my need for Jesus. I want Jesus. I'll take Jesus. And I give you the rest. I give you my life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.